So, Ranan, how has the past year as president been? Have you achieved what you set out to achieve? Well, it's been incredibly enjoyable um, and remarkably busy. Um, uh, have I achieved? Well, as you know, the president is encouraged to have a project. And uh, I was told by Charmed, uh, chair of council, to hit the ground running. So I started working on my project, which was about justice and fairness, and with a particular objective of trying to get a commitment to practice fairly and justly throughout my professional life into the Declaration of Geneva of the World Medical Association. And my reason for that was that they had, in 2017, introduced uh, the principle of respect for autonomy into the Declaration of Geneva. And I thought it would be two things. One, good to introduce a sort of balancing concern for populations and groups. Respect for autonomy, enormously important, but focused on individuals. Um, and uh, this seemed to be an important uh, addition to add a, you know, justice. And the other reason for it was that I'm a four principles advocate uh, for medical ethics, you know, respect for autonomy, justice, but also the traditional Hippocratic objectives of benefiting others and doing so with as little harm as possible, not harming them. So uh, it seemed essential to me to try and get this fourth principle into the, um, uh, the Declaration of Geneva. And that was my primary objective. I then added some more into the presidential project. Now, let me ask you a question. <laughs> um, I've been looking at, uh, at your profile, uh, which is very extensive, uh, uh, you know, and on Googling and all that. And I was very impressed by a TED talk that you gave, uh, absolutely fascinating, about wellness. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, my interest in this goes back to the time when I was thinking of leaving surgery and my great friend, the late Sam Galbraith, Sam was a neurosurgeon who went into politics, became a Labour MP and ultimately became Scottish Health Minister. So I was discussing with him one day, look, I'm really not achieving what I want to achieve as a surgeon. And he said, why don't you go into politics? And I said, Sam, I'd rather have my eyes plucked out than go into politics. Uh, he said, well, why don't you go and do public health? And I thought, OK, that, that would help. And as I went into public health, I realized that fundamentally I'm a scientist. Fundamentally, I am interested in the science of what causes us to be as we are. And well-being was often came across as a kind of fluffy, airy-fairy thing about us feeling good about ourselves and so on. And I set about trying to understand the science of well-being. And indeed, there is a lot out there in the literature. The, it, it, the term salutogenesis has been coined as an opposite to pathogenesis, Salus being the Roman goddess of safety and well-being. And the kind of theories that go into this idea of creating well-being, many of them center on the neurobiology and the endocrinology of early life, the way in which how children are nurtured creates their capacity to make decisions, their capacity to control stress. One of Michael Marmot's 
important contributions were showing that lower down the social scale you are, the more likely your stress responses are to be overactive and so on. There is a biological basis of that. So what I've tried to do and what my TED Talk was about was trying to make people realize that well-being is not an airy-fairy fluffy thing. It's something that there is a science behind. And by changing the way in which we nurture families and children, we can create a different pattern of growth and behavior. And as I say to politicians, if I'm talking to politicians on the left of the political spectrum, I say this is an issue of social justice, support families, support children. And politicians on the right, what I say to them is, well, if you support families and support children, the children will be engaged at school, they'll do well at school, they won't get into trouble, they'll get jobs and they'll pay taxes. So what's not to like, guys? <laughs> no. So it's it's that I try to give them hard science behind this. Yes. I think it's a fascinating development in ethics generally, um, trying to understand what's going on in the brain uh, when we, quote, do ethics. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, it has deep philosophical implications, of course, about uh, determinism and uh, how can we reconcile um, our free choice, our freedom of choice, our free will uh, with um, the notion that we are essentially biological machines. Uh, I think there is a way of doing it, but, um, but it's a it's very deep, um, deep philosophy. Yes. I, I think we vary in our capacity to make positive decisions about our future. It comes back to Martin Seligman and land helplessness. Children who are constantly put down and belittled feel they can't make positive choices about their lives. And I have many, many, I hesitate to call them case studies because some of them have become my friends, but young people who have been in jail, often for serious crimes, have been befriended by prison officers or policemen or whatever and made to feel worthwhile, made to feel that they are not hopeless, that they can make choices and have gone on to make positive lives for themselves. You can change it. And I'm, I'm my, my particular interest is trying to reconcile the notion that we can make choices, maybe more limited than we think, but nonetheless, we know perfectly well from our own experience that we can make choices and to understand how that fits in with um, brain mechanisms. Yes. So the way in which brains develop when children are neglected is not set in stone throughout their lives. There is evidence that even in older age, even in elderly people, uh, the epigenetics can change the, the structural uh, abnormalities that have developed in early life can be repaired and so on. So it's not as if it's set in stone. Throughout life, you can change things. Now, another area I was going to ask you about uh, was uh, an early article or contribution to a book of yours about um, rationing and um, uh, justice in that sense. So uh, I wondered if you could say a bit more about that. I, you may not have quite the same critical attitude that you had then, but... Uh, <laughs> Yes, possibly. Um, I suppose fairness comes into this and not doing any harm. I mean, if you throw lots and lots of money at fewer and fewer conditions, then if there's a limit to the resource, someone is going to suffer. 
Um, yeah. we're, we're seeing opportunity cost, as the as the economists call it, that's a... the opportunity cost, and we're seeing that in the post. In, well, we're not in the post COVID era, but we're seeing that people who have not been able to get into hospital because they've been swamped by COVID cases are waiting longer and longer for what could potentially be life saving surgery. So, so there are trade offs that are made, and. I think as long as we try to be as fair as possible, as long as we do our best for people, then we have to live with that. And within the trade-offs, I think we need to import the health economist's concept of um, opportunity cost, i.e. within a limited pot, you spend X, then X is not available to anyone else. Um, hugely important ethical issue, which... Um, and. What I object to is the political, some of the politicians who say, well, they've made their choice, you know, they've decided to smoke or they've decided to get obese or they've decided this, that or ever. Therefore, they don't deserve the kind of intervention, you know, this idea that we don't treat people whose illnesses are, quotes, self-inflicted. They may not have had the capacity to make the choices that others have been able to make. And even if they have, I mean, it's it's clearly an aspect of justice, um, you might call retributive justice, that may have relevance in some areas of life. But I certainly have argued, and I'm sure you would argue too, that it shouldn't be part of medical ethics attitudes to justice. If if it has to be done, let, let it be done properly by others, but not by doctors. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, one of the things that is happening in Scotland just now is work on what we're calling the well-being economy. And we have, we're, Scotland is part of something that's been created called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, or we all, uh, countries like New Zealand and so on are part of that also. And it's about how we design the economy so that everyone has the capacity to contribute and to benefit from it. And as a result, can feel able to make choices in their life so it, it it's quite a challenge to think that through, yeah. but we're working on it. A sort of capability aspect of justice, developing people's capabilities, uh, a Marcia Sen sort of approach. Exactly. And one of the really uh, nice things is that the group that meets to discuss this meets in what used to be Adam Smith's house in Edinburgh. <laughs> oh, how funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The wealth of nations. Yes. I hope he would be turning in his grave <laughs> as our discussions. <laughs> well, I was just wondering what else uh, I wanted to ask you about. But uh... Well, could I ask you something then? Of course. What now? What, what does the next year hold for you? Well, I'm very pleased to have been allowed to go on the working group of the WMA uh, on the um, uh, International Code of Medical Ethics. And that's a great privilege and a great pleasure and um, a very interesting um, bit of work. So, so that's something I should be focusing on. I have a, a sort of an idea in my mind that uh, I might actually write about these four principles um, not for doctors, as I previously did, but for the population as a whole, for any thinking moral agents. It, it seems to me that the notion that you can prima facie commit yourself to benefiting others, not harming others, respecting their autonomy, seen as choices for themselves, not choices for others, 
uh, and uh, justice seen as treating people equally unless there are good reasons not to treat them equally. And then you treat them unequally, as Aristotle said, in proportion to the relevant inequality. Now, that's a bit complex, but nonetheless, um, those sorts of commitments, because that's what they are, prima facie commitments, seem to me to be universalizable. Uh, all moral agents can actually, when they think about it, accept that. So so I'm thinking about uh, possibly turning that into a book, if I can uh, get the energy to do it. <laughs> that That would be absolutely fascinating, especially if we could influence some of the countries that Retain power at the centre, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I see democracy as as a, a way of trying to obtain uh, to to obtain respect for autonomy of a group, so far as that can be done, uh, but also to be done in a way that actually respects these four principles. Because uh, democracy without principles is potentially disastrous, as we found with the the Third Reich. Um, it's uh, it needs itself to be based on some uh, agreed principles, and I think these principles stand a good chance of widespread agreement. Yes, and of course we've got another election coming up uh, on the other side of the Atlantic soon. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, there will be some principled voting going on. <laughs> one hopes. One hopes. <laughs> okay, well, good luck on that, and uh, I look forward to hearing how you how you get on. Let's stay in touch. Yes, I, I just need to summon up the energy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and good luck to you with your year uh, at the BMA, but I'm sure it'll be a very productive one. Thank you, thank you.